got this two-handed drinking problem. I don't know where I got that. <laughs> My name's Mark Houston. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hey, Phil, they forgot to tell you, in order for you to get that book, you got to come up here and talk for ten minutes. <laughs> just, just kidding, buddy, just kidding. <laughs> wow, it's great to, great to be here. One, one other little segment of that story. Uh, when I got some, what I thought was intuitive direction about coming here to speak with you, it was the summertime in... <laughs> Monday, some of you know my pal Chris R., Chris Raymer, and I, I was going up to speak at his group, and it's 81 degrees, and I got a new iPhone, and I put in Portland, Maine, and it was two above zero. <laughs> and I realized the error of my decision-making. <laughs> but then, of course, you see what God did. He brought along a beautiful day today, and, you know, all the rest, so. Uh, I don't know if some of you know uh, Matthew S., Matthew Sizig from Denver. He uh, uh, was very involved in Fellowship of the Spirits uh, around. He sent me a text message about 15 minutes ago and said, tell the folks up there I said hello and pull the governor off of it, <laughs> right? <laughs> so uh, Don Pritz, who, uh, you know, I'm really connected to a lot of you in, in so many ways, and of course, I sobered up in Denver, and uh, Don Pritz uh, was one of several sponsors I had, and and I would say uh, certainly had a, a huge influence uh, on me. And I went to the very first uh, Fellowship of the Spirit that they had in Colorado. I think there were might have been a hundred people there at the at the most, and uh, now I think there's eight or nine of them, you know, all over the country. You know, you if you're new sitting in here, whether you got a little bit of time or a lot of time, you know. Uh, we're agents of God, spearheads. So God, see, God takes a guy like him and impacts thousands. So you don't know how you're going to get used. Uh, you got to let go of that thing, you know. Uh, I used to warn guys. They they brag about Don P was sponsoring. I said, Oh, I feel far, sorry for you. And they go, Why? And I said, Oh, because you're going to get sent somewhere. <laughs> see, you know. Good to see Ralph there, my, you know, Joe, Joe Hawk, God bless him, uh, uh, you know, he passed away and, and uh, sent to L.A. He and I were living together in Denver and goes to L.A. and a and, uh, whole bunch of people ask him to, you know, sponsor him and you can't do that and he starts a workshop and just, it multiplies, you know, like, like rabbits and it's an amazing thing. Uh, if, you, if you haven't gone to other uh, Fellowship of the Spirit conferences, then you... You don't know what it's like, but I but I got to tell you because I I've gone to a lot of others. They're hands down my favorite place to go, uh, and the reason is is because of the agreement and the work we make before we ever come here, which is that there's a set of precise, specific, clear-cut instructions that if we will take those, we will have a revolutionary spiritual experience, begin to work with the disciplines of ten, eleven, and twelve, and have an amazing life in all aspects, and we get to bring that together. So these types of gatherings, to me, have always felt very calm. You know, you go to some of them, there's that frenetic energy. It's so intense sometimes, I just have to find a space and, like, hide out so they don't, you get sucked into the vortex, you know, and you, 
And when you leave one like this, you know, your head doesn't spin for a week, you know, like in some of them. But, see, you go to conferences and conventions where, where you have people that have a lot of experience who step one, two, three, twelve. <laughs> you leave, feel a little toxic for a period of time, you know. It's just, just the way that goes. But um, I, was, I was thinking, uh, Jack last night, where's Jack at? Raise your hand. Jack, who, yeah. Uh, I was thinking, Jack, I, I, I loved it when you said, you know, you tough guy and you go up the nursing home, beat someone. I, I, I'm, I'm going to go up there with you, you know. You. <laughs> See, I like what Ralph said about messy. You know, I don't, there's no arrival place. You know, I'm in my 27th year. For many, many, many years, I resubmit to the first nine steps. See, and, and, um, um, you know, I've got a spirit house in this body, but I still got this, this human experience going on. And so what does that mean? It means on any given day, if I fall asleep, I still got this, this human experience going on. And so what does that mean? It means on any given day, if I fall asleep, I fall, I fall short. See, I fall short. And if I fall short, I normally get afraid. And if I get afraid, you're going to get a reaction out of me, and it won't be spiritual in nature. But I have a tool to clean that up, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I tell you, um, I always laugh when someone talks about bringing themselves to AA. You know, like you, we sat down January 1st and we looked at our day planner and said, I think what I'll do on February 9th, I'll, I'll go to AA or however we get here, you See, outside of my birth, probably the most single miraculous event of my life happened the morning of October 19th of 1982 in Aurora, Colorado, in which the power of God, because that's what I'm going to talk with you about, not God, the power behind the name, see, separated me from alcohol. And that power has kept me separated from alcohol from then till now. And guess what? The most miraculous event of my life I'm sound asleep to. Maybe about six months later, this little thought comes into my mind. Because I was a daily drinker. Drank a lot. Somewhere around six months, the thought creeps through my mind of, wait a minute. You drank for 20 years. The only time that you ever did not drink on a daily basis when you absolutely couldn't because you were either confined, locked up, or whatever, and you've gone six months, there's a slim chance you're not doing this. <laughs> see, you, see, how do you help somebody that asleep? You understand what I just said? This, we, 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 there's so many things we lay claim to. You know, there's a, there's a story that describes me and every alky I've ever worked with about how asleep I am. And, and, and the story goes like this. Uh, there was a guy, he loved to uh, hunt ducks, and, and uh, he had a neighbor who was a drunk like me. And, and one day he, he, went out, uh, he went out hunting, and uh, he shot a couple ducks, and then lo and behold, this dog shows up. And to his amazement, this dog walked across the water to retrieve these birds he shot. He was just flabbergasted. He never said anything like it. Dog walking across the water. So... He goes back the next day, and the Alki's getting drunk, and he says, are you, you going to go hunting tomorrow? He said, yeah, I am. And the Alki said, oh, I'd like to go with you. So the old Alki did what we do. He just kept drinking all night, and 
So they, they get up early and they go back out to the duck blind. They got this dog there. And they start shooting ducks. This dog's walking across the water and retrieving the ducks. Six times. And, of course, this normie's waiting for this alky to say something about the fact this dog is walking across the water. He doesn't. So finally, the guy turns to him after he'd retrieved another duck. He brought it down and lays it right in front. He walked across the water. And he says to the elkie, he said, do you see anything strange about that dog? And the elkie kind of looks down and he looks back and he goes, as a matter of fact, I did. The poor thing can't swim. <laughs> see, if you got a mind that's looking at the world like that, you're a deep shit. And, and I'm going to refer to that a lot because long time sober, sometimes that, that a poor dog can't swim. See, that's the kind of mind I had. And this grace and this power showed up, you know, in, in my life. Um, you know, I drank, drank for 20 years. I took my first drink when I was 16 and I drank till I was 36 and, and, and I got separated from it. And, and unbeknownst to me, you know, the big book so massively lays out how we find out our truth. And I'm going to talk with you about that. As a matter of fact, I, uh, I'm recently in the process of reworking through the steps, and I've gotten the inventory, and I, I just always pray about, you know, what would God have me, me do and share with you. And I've got a, some inventory. I want to show you how I write inventory. I want to show you how I got to where I am, the state of conscious now of writing. What did I, I do? How did I look at this first step? But the, the idea that I take a drink... And then I think I'd take the next one, and the next one, and the next one kept me drinking for a long time. It never occurred to me that I take a drink, and then at some point the drink takes the drink. You get that? See? Book uses the, the verbiage, you have a phenomenon of craving. I've always laughed about that. 33 pages of the big book were devoted me to, devoted to help me look at one question. Mark, when you take a drink, do you lose power, choice, control over how much? Now, that doesn't seem like it would take 33 pages to do that. <laughs> but it does if you're an alky who doesn't want to be an alky. See? I remember, I, I, you know, the big books got drunk questions all the way through, and I'd try them out in my mother. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'd say to her, you, you know, because, uh, you know, bless her heart, she's passed away now, and she drank for 60 years, but she's not one of us. And I'd say to her, Mom, I got a question. You know, you're going through and you're having this profound experience, and you you've seen that once you take a drink, it takes you. And the books told you why, and you see your experience, and you see it's true. And so I'd say, well, let me ask you a question. You know, because I, I saw her get drunk sometimes, and I say, uh, when would you take a drink? Do you lose power, choice, control over how many you drink? And she looks at me and she goes, Why would I do that? <laughs> see, a normal person, you know, but that that's why there's 33 pages. See, people who aren't alcoholic don't understand something. I was telling a new guy I was talking to today, when you ask me to quit drinking, you ask me to give you my life. When you ask me to quit drinking, you ask me to give to you the only thing that gave me any ease and comfort because I got no conscious contact with God. You ain't asking me to give up vodka. You're asking me to give up my life. You're asking me to give you my arm, my leg. You see, that's why one alcoholic working with another alcoholic, we get that. See, we know that we're asking for so much more. You know? I'm going to talk a little bit with you about the effect produced by alcohol. I look at that. I've had to look at that a lot. Why? Because I think not looking at it leads people to taking a drink again. 
Yeah, you know, I had to understand what the big book meant when it said the alcohol was Mark's master. And look up the word. What does it mean to be a slave to something? See, that was my relationship with alcohol. That's the power and the pull that alcohol had on me. And the reason was the effect produced. It gave me some sense of ease and comfort in a world that is too big and frightens me. And there's only two ways I operate in this world. A lot of conscious contact. And I stress the word conscious contact. Not belief in God. A lot of conscious contact with God or my experience is I'm going to have a lot of vodka. And it's the only two things that have ever given me ease and comfort. See? See, how do you stand in front of a large group like this without a lot of vodka? Well, you better have a lot of God. See? <laughs> he said, when asked me, you know, about speaking and, you know, well, do you like speaking? And I said, who... Who would like standing in front of the most selfish, self-centered, judgmental group of people on the planet? I said, you act like there's a say in this. You know, I said, no, I, I, I don't. You know, it's AA's not the Qantas club. You know, it's, uh, it's full of judgmental, selfish, self-centered, comparable, you know. It's, it, it rolls like you better have God when you're going up to do that, see? And then, you know. Then they tape it, and then it goes over the Internet, and it's, you know, things have changed a little over the years, right, you know. But, but back to this first step, you know, from my first drink when I was 16, right up to my last one, I take the drink, and then the drink takes the drink, and I never got that. I never understood that, because early on that drinking, I could drink all kinds of alcohol, drive the car, and, you know. You ought to know there's something wrong when you're 16, and you got three pals with you, and you buy a case of beer, and, and I'm driving the car, and... And by the time the night's over, those three are puking. I've probably drank almost uh, half of a case, and I'm still driving, and they're all sick. Now, I'm bragging the next day. I should, in hindsight, I should have knew that that was a problem. See, my body was having an abnormal reaction to alcohol, and I didn't take it as an abnormal reaction. But I, for the very first drink, you know, the effect produced, see? that effect produce. And then the, the tragedy of the illness that I have called alcoholism around this phenomenon of craving is, I don't know, you know, we, we all have a point. For me, it was probably about four drinks, big ones. And it took me my place, you know, not much different than the place I go in meditation. You know the place. You're just okay. And you can breathe. You can relax, you know, and it's not a question anymore of you're not good enough and you're not this or that. You're just here and you're present. Oh, God, it's nice. And then that drink says, I need another. And then you drink the fifth and then you're on to the 20th. And you zoom way past the very reason you took it to begin with. And you, there's nothing you can do about that. But you don't even know that's going on. Asleep, dreaming, you're awake, thinking you're having fun, you know. So, but that went on. You know, and then, then the other pieces, as I got older, born and raised in the Midwest and finishing up college, get drafted, get sent to Vietnam and begin to mix a lot of outside issues along with, with the alcohol. But the outside issues were all about the capacity to drink more alcohol. Uh, you know, I to this day probably love alcohol more than most people drinking it, you know. I, I mean that. It's absolutely the truth. I don't deceive myself about my relationship with alcohol. This is a room full of people who are just like me. Uh, the day before you came into these rooms, you had a throne in wherever you lived. Now, it may have been your car, 
or it may have been a home, but you had an altar, and on that altar was your drug of no choice, alcohol, like mine. If I'd done it, if I had to do it over again, I'd, I'd had great bottles, and I just got down every morning and said, Oh, King Alcohol, let thy will be done in my life today. You see, because it was, and because I served it, right? See, that's the relationship with alcohol, and you come in, and then I think there's something I'm going to do to get myself sober, right? See, that power behind the name got me sober. And then if you believe the big book, and I do because my experience with the big book says that what it told me was my truth, then now I'm given a responsibility once I get awake enough to realize there is a God, I experienced that God, it's in my life, and now my responsibility is to do the things necessary to get to the place the big book talks about called fit spiritual condition. The only reason I'm standing here with you tonight, the only reason I didn't drink today, is fit spiritual condition. And I'm responsible for that, not God. You know? I mean, if, if this whole thing was about God, the big book would be one page long. It'd say, God gets and keeps you sober. Have a good day. <laughs> it doesn't. There's a lot of work in there that I actually I have to take, right? See? And then the, we, we actually get the easy part. The easy part is we take this action and it, that power, God, does all the rest. Our part's easy, like putting together swing set instructions, right? A, B, C, D, E, get in the swing and swing. They have that awareness of that. My lack of understanding about the obsession that this disease has almost killed me. Meaning, pages 23 to 43 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous does a masterful job of talking to me about being stole cold sober and then my mind convincing me to take a drink again, to commit the most insane act of my life sober. To answer a question, am I involved in that? See, and the, the horrific part of that is Sometimes I am, and most of the time I'm not. I work a lot with men that have a lot of relapse history. I love to ask them a question. Were you involved in your last relapse? What do you mean? <laughs> Did you choose to drink? Now I'll go, oh, yeah. I said, well, you, you don't need to do any work with me. And they go, what do you mean? I said, because if I could choose when I'm going to drink or not drink, I don't need to be in AA. They go, oh, my God. See, because a, <laughs> a very fundamental thing has been completely missed. Big Book talks about it. It says the extent to which Mark can recover on a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which Mark lost the power to choose whether Mark will drink or not drink. And I have an experience that abundantly confirms that when I would wake up in the morning, I had no say in whether I drink or didn't drink, which is why I... I'm 100% hopeless apart from divine help. But since the dog can't swim, I don't know that. See? See, I do things like take a drink and I'm living with a woman and I'm going to go up to the bar and I'm going to get a drink and I'm supposed to go get milk and I'm in Denver, Colorado and I take a drink and six days later I come out of a blackout in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is 800 miles away. And I have no recall of how I get there. And she was not happy when I got back. 
See, and I had about five, six days between a drink when I thought that I needed another one. See, and I think I'm involved in that process, in that decision-making. you understand what I mean? Why would I go get any help if I think I'm having something to do with that, right? One day, I put together a combination of a lot of vodka and some outside issues, and I'm at a bar in Evergreen, Colorado called Little Bear. And uh, I did a lot of blackout drinking my last three, four, five years. Didn't know that till I've been sober for a while. And when I wake up, I hear a tapping. I borrowed my parents' SUV. The part I, I was at, there's a lot of mountains and cliffs and that kind of stuff. And I hear this knocking. So I'm like passed out laying in the front seat. And this boy says, do not move quickly. So I go, okay. So I very carefully sit up. And I, I realize I can't see anything over the front. And I turn around, and there's a cop standing about right back there. And he said, the reason I'm telling you not to move is your car is resting on a very large telephone pole, and what is in front of you is a 90-foot drop-off. So I really need you to stay still, because we're going to get a crane to hook the front of your car. And Now, one would think that may have had some influence on stopping drinking. That was a great reason to go get a drink. <laughs> See, the hard drinker's reason to quit is my reason to start. One last story, and that's enough I need to tell you about my drinking. I uh, was uh, on about a five-day run, Colorado, living with a guy or a gal, I mean. And uh, thank God she was a, a paramedic because I... Uh, uh, I had respiratory failure. My heart stopped. And uh, she uh, basically saved my life. As a matter of fact, I, I saw that first time that movie Pulp Fiction came out and that one scene in there where they jammed that needle. I about went to hyperventilate. And the reason was that's basically what she did with me to save my life. And uh, they take me in a flight for life ride. And I was in intensive care. I had acute alcoholic poisoning, respiratory failure. And so I'm about five days into ICU, and, 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 the, and those of you who drink like I drink knew that I was probably getting real thirsty. And uh, um, called a buddy, and he came up to ICU, and he brought me some clothes, and I unhooked all that stuff, and, and I left, and I was in a bar drinking vodka that night. You see? That's the kind of drinker I am. There was nothing that was going to get between Mark Houston and a drink of alcohol. There was no woman there was no child, there was no job, you see. Alcohol was my master, and it was for a lot of reasons. Most of all, in hindsight, was the effect that it produced in me. It produced a sense of ease and comfort in a world that's too big, that scares me. You know? I really woke up to this. I was around 15, 16 years sober. I was living in Kerrville, Texas, and I was going to the grocery store. And Some of you that have been sober for a while might relate to this. I don't think we talk about it enough in the room, but fear. Life scared me. Life scares me. See? And I pull up, and I'm going to go in this grocery store, and there's this impending doom fear running through me. And I said to myself, what is this? 
You know, I'm afraid to walk into a grocery store. I'm 15 years and sober and love God. And then the voice says, it really doesn't matter. It might help if you'd pray right now. So I did. And I got hooked up, conscious contact again. And I went in the store and I was fine. I came back out and I realized, Mark, these disciplines, staying hooked up, this conscious contact, you absolutely must do that. For whatever reason, you are ill-equipped to live in this world, drunk or sober. There's a lot of reasons why I'm such a uh, huge advocate of the strict disciplines of the 10th and 11th stack. The biggest reason is I like the effect produced by doing it. Because I have experience with not doing that. See? So this power shows up in my life. I'm in Denver, Colorado tripping along a little bit. I had a couple of men sponsor me, and then I uh, hooked up with Don Pritz because my good friend Joe, Joe and I sobered up. He was, got sober a couple of months ahead of me, and I noticed he was getting a lot better. And I really wasn't doing much work with these two men. Uh, they did not work out of the book like we know how to work out of the book, and uh, I was paying the price for that. See? That's why I think we have a tremendous responsibility, you know, the young men that picked up the book. I only know one way. Because if he's an alky of my type, he suffers from a disease that is deadly in nature and kills and kills every time. And I have a tremendous responsibility to him to sit down with him with that big book and talk about this. And talk about a process we're going to have to go through and lay out what it means to be willing to go to any lengths. You know, I still remember when I approached Don. I was probably around three years sober and I asked him about taking me through the work, because in Denver, you use the word sponsor, it's a little dicey. They're real purist up there, and it's not in the first 164, right? So you got to be careful who you use that word with, see? But uh, get a little carried away sometimes up there. But uh, he said to me, what do you think well-negotiating length looks like? You know, we do that a lot with new people, right? We say to them, are you well-negotiating length? And they go, oh, yeah. There's a real important question they, they failed to ask. What does that look like? See? What does that look like? So I always sit down with anyone, just like it was done with me, and I talk about what that looks like. And I go to page 58, and I go through those steps, and I talk about the body of work that we're going to have to do and the course of action we're going to take. I talk about, you know, these decisions and choices to find out your truth in the first step. You know, is this you? You've got to make a choice in the second step. You know, is God everything or God's nothing? I talk about that choice. I talk about the third step decision, the third step requirement. I talk about these inventories we've got to write. I talk about the fifth step. I talk about six and seven. I talk about the list. I talk about amends. Pay the money back. Go to these employers. Go to these people. Go to your family. Right? I remember one time I was doing that with a guy. He stops and he goes, Mark, I just I want to not drink. <laughs> I said, I, I understand that. I talk about the disciplines of 10 or 11. See, you transmit what you have. You cannot transmit what you don't. And the way you work with somebody is crucial. Remember that, by the way. Those of you who sponsor people. See, I, I only know to do what was done with me by Don in particular is where it all really started. Then I'd talk about the disciplines of 10, 11 with him. And then the 12th. See, 
go over some of the stuff in the chapter working with others where the new guy sees that he is responsible, just like Don said to me. You're responsible for your sobriety, not me. Don did, did something right away with me that I believe is crucial. He said, my goal is to get you independent of me as quick as possible and hooked up to God. Right? See, and, and, and I know why he did that. Because sponsors drink, they die, they move, right? Get connected to God, get connected to the program, get connected to the book. See? It's wonderful if you have all those things on top of that. But he would never allow any degree of dependency at all whatsoever to be placed on him. And it was always about back into the book. So I do the same thing when, when I'm approached by, by someone new. And then I say to them, why don't you take two, three days? You pray about that. Then if you want to do this, because now you see we can answer the question, are you linked? Right? Now they can answer that question. The guys who call me back are never the guys I want to call me back. <laughs> Those, right? Now they can answer that question. The guys who call me back are never the guys I want to call me back. Those of you laughing know exactly what I'm talking about. I get the intellectual pseudos, the gum chewing, just, ugh. The chronic relapser, his four favorite words are, I know and yes, but, you know, and knows the book better than I do. And, and you know, you just, uh, it's like, oh, no, then, but see, if, if, if they say yes, then, you know, then I have to. Spiritual consent. I work with spiritual consent. See? If someone asks me to work with them, then they have given me spiritual consent to bring them the truth. And I do that, you know. I had, uh, I had my years of being a zealot and trying to put the big book uh, in places it doesn't belong and uh, uh, having to clean some of that up. But today I work off spiritual consent. If I don't have consent to come into your life and present some truth to you, then I won't do that took me a while to understand that, but I get that agreement just like Don did with me. You know, on this date, I know what willing to go and look looks like. And then you start the process, see? But we go back and, and you, you look at this, this idea when I think about the, the unmanageability of my life, the spirituality, untreated alcoholism. Uh, God, my earliest memories... And all that stuff, by the way, as we all know, is at a gut level, isn't it? Trouble in personal relationships, can't control my emotional nature, restless, irritable, discontent, walk into a room like this and, and, and feeling separate from, see, not connected to. That those voices talking to you, you know, well, what if somebody talks to me? Well, what if they don't? You know? I mean, don't you, don't you love that voice? You know, you, I'll tell you the one I love. It's the voice that says, Mark, let's go do this. And then I go do it. It doesn't turn out well. And the same voice turns around and says, you dumbass, I told you we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> See, now that's just not right. You know what I'm saying? See? See, I had to get familiar with the voices. And trust me, there's more than one. I joke about that, but, you know, every morning, and you, this happened to every one of you this morning, you got up and imagine there's a little table there. And imagine there's eight chairs, and I'll give you a little assignment. 
I want you to try and identify the predominant eight voices because they're all different parts of your ego that you think define who you are. And they all started talking to you. This morning, my eyes aren't even awake. And the caffeine voice, nicotine voice said, get it going, baby. (laughs) Now, I didn't bring my workout clothes, so the jock said, you've gained 30 pounds in a day. I know you have. We're going to look like shit. I I haven't even gotten out of the bed to the bathroom yet. See? Spiritual guy says, well, you slept past what time we normally get up to do our disciplines. Whoa. See, and then then you use the bathroom, you get the caffeine. See, somebody better chair that meeting. See? So you sit down, you open the big book upon awakening. Say, guys, take a chill pill. The spiritual Mr. AA is going to chair this one, right? So, you know, they're having the, you know, the boy, he's the work, the work. What about work? Hush. I'm chairing. See, but I have fun with myself with that. But see, it's the reason you're all laughing is you got your own little chick going on here, don't you? You better wake up to this. By the way, this is where all your inventory comes from. All these little stage characters, that's the word the big book uses. That's where all your inventory comes from, right? My my main ones right now would probably be you got of course you got this Mr. AA spiritual guy. You know. He's got a whole set of needs, values, and belief systems. I mean, one of the reasons he's comfortable here is he pretty well figures most of you are in agreement with him, and that's a wonderful thing. See? That's not true some places he goes, you know. And uh, so he's here. Then I, I've always had this, like, potential mystic-to-be guy, you know. St. John of the Cross and be a monk, and I probably miss my calling and, you know, all that kind of. Let's go meditate for three hours and vibrate for a while and, you know. <laughs> he He's in there. He just had me rebuy Sermon on the Mount. He thinks thinks there was something we might have missed in the nineteen times we've read it. You know, you. I, I definitely have this jock. You know, I I, uh, I work out five six times a week, and you know, he uh, uh, you know he he gets to working on me. You know, um, I uh, I own my own business now, so we got this present owner guy. You know. Um, I got a girlfriend, so you got this boyfriend voice, you know, and you, and I, I've always had a Rambo, you know, he's, trust me, Rambo's there, you know. And, and uh, uh, I'm a writer, so that's another one, you know, and they, but do you see what happens within five minutes upon awakening, you know? No wonder the book says, upon awakening, <laughs> right? Old Bill Wilson had the same crap going on we do, you know. Oh, what do you think about this, Dr. Bob? Do you, do you, no, no, stop, you know. I mean, thank God for meditation to save my life. I could actually listen to one voice at a time, you know. But uh, anyhow, that journey, you know, journey through the steps. Don takes me through the steps, and I had a revolutionary experience, just like the book talked about. Had a lot of amends and was moving through the amends process, and in hindsight was doing some stuff with uh, 10... 11, the prayer, but I don't have any recall of doing much with meditation my first nine, nine and a half years sober. Then Don moved away, become a world trustee. Joe moved to California. 
And then I experienced that phenomenon called reconstruction of the ego in which you take a valid spiritual experience in which you know God to the point of weeping and now you're left with a memory of it. See? And somewhere between my about nine and a half years sober, now it took about three years, my experience today is if everything's not under that umbrella of God, it ultimately leaves. And the house was gone and she was gone and the career was gone and I couldn't work and I'm reduced to sitting in an apartment. And that's it. I, can't, I got taken to a place I couldn't even go to meetings. Now, that was a little bit about a little bit more than untreated alcoholism. But untreated alcoholism was a lot of it. With some unfinished amends, I needed to have been doing far more work with inventory. I certainly needed, in hindsight, to have been working with meditation so that I lose my identification with my mind and the chatter of a thousand monkeys, right? So through a series of events, because, uh, see, I couldn't drink. See, if God don't want you drinking, you're not drinking. But there were other options I felt were available to me. Because, see, I don't think you're any different than me. Death does not scare me. Life is what scares me and you. If you don't believe me, look at how you drink. See, I thought nothing to drink in a quart of vodka and getting in a big vehicle and driving down freeways. Right? In a blackout. See, I'm not afraid of death. You know? But life... See, how do I do life? See, I don't know how I did what I did today, and the world wants me to do it tomorrow. You follow me? See, so it's, so it's life. And so through a series of events, I wind up in, in this uh, psych hospital in Houston, Texas. Need to be there. And I also, in hindsight, I really had an experience with the third step because I'm, at that time, I'm between my ninth and tenth year. I had a bunch of experience with the book. I've got some sober time. I had rebuilt my life because when I sobered up in 1982, I had brain damage, kidney damage, liver damage, everything I owned fit in a duffel bag. And I had built up some things in the material world, and that's all gone. And when I, when I talk about I really had a third step, that's when my experience abundantly confirmed drunk or sober. My attempts to run my life on my will had me in a nut house. <laughs> sober. I quit in that nuthouse. I really took the third step. And the implications of that word, you know, God, I offer myself to thee and build with me and you do with me as you will. I absolutely said that and meant that and I live this to this day. Where I live and who's in my life and what I do is absolutely none of my business. My deal's simple. Work with the disciplines of 10, 11, get thrust into wherever I get thrust into with 12, and God, that power behind that name, does all the rest for me. Determines where I live, allows me to make good decisions, all of those kinds of things. But that came through great, great suffering. See, I didn't wake up sober and decide to become an agent of self-will. <laughs> that isn't how it works. See, the ego takes the best of you. I don't care how long you're sober. See, Ralph touching that today. My self-will can't eliminate my self-will. If it could, we'd all be doing so much better, right? See, we're not like a lot of other people. They can go buy, they can go buy some book, and they can, they can read a set of instructions and follow them, and their life changes, right? 
for you and I, that's more like moral and philosophical convictions, none of which I could live up to. See, I can't do that. That hasn't that has never worked for me. So I left that place, and uh, I really did a lot of work for two years with the first nine steps, and I began to d- develop a daily meditation life and begin to have tremendous experiences through the result of my di- working with the disciplines of the 10th and 11th step. Because what I did is, is, based on where I wound up, I really looked at the 10th and 11th step in the big book, and I got honest with myself about what I'd been unwilling to do. I had never consistently had a daily life of meditation, and yet the book is very clear to me. It is essential for me to stay, do it for fit spiritual condition. And I could no longer lie to myself about what I had not been doing. And I saw there was all kinds of practices with the 10th step I hadn't been doing. And I saw I had unfinished amends. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? Because this is the way I'm wired. I'm going to do this, and I'm not missing a beat. For a minimum of one year, I'm going to follow and do everything and said, and of course, my life, guess what, took off like a rocket. Gee, what a surprise, right? I should have had a V8. Uh, <laughs> you know, amazing stuff started to happen. Amazing stuff around the God issue, uh, Native American stuff. I still laugh about that. I was in Kerrville, Texas, and I'd made a circle out of stones, and I was doing sweats, and I needed that. That became part of my journey because I'd lost my connection with Mother Earth. My, my neighbor thought I was a, a satanic wa- worshiper because I, <laughs> I, you know, had the red road and I'd go sit out there and meditate. Unbeknownst to me, she's telling everyone I'm worshiping Satan, you know. It's <clears throat> funny how that works. But then I uh, did a bunch of work with uh, Christian mysticism and Buddhism. And, you know, I do a lot of stuff in the 11th step along with never instead of. Along with, you see, I was given the 12 steps. That became the pathway to have this experience so that I could have conscious contact, tap into this power. Then along the way, you know, you get the freedom to move and do so much more in the 11th step. Stuff with the Order of St. Benedict and uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, go talk and, and take uh, groups on, uh, uh, classes on, on meditation. Fun stuff. You know, Don used to say it, and, and I finally understood it one day. He said, you know, you're best served if you have a sponsor who likes to go look for two-headed camels. Well, now, what the hell does that mean? You know, you, know, you well, I know exactly what he meant. He, he meant in, in, in a world in, in, that we live in, in a God that we cannot comprehend, stay open-minded and get excited. That's what he was saying, you know. I mean, uh, Thomas Merton says, as those who think they know from the beginning will in fact never come to know anything. Every day I'm reborn into a world that I have no experience with. See, I know that. Today when I got up, some of you that I met yesterday, what I didn't have any experience with was interacting with you now. Now, do you get that? What an incredible thing to wake up to. A lot of these practices, many other things begin to get revealed all ultimately through the step work. That I live in a world of impermanence and that everything is on loan to me and nothing is mine. All our inventory comes from mine. My house, my car, my wife. Pay attention to language. You know, you, you meet a couple that are married. I, I, this is, 
stuff people just to sleep to, you know, well, well, here's my wife. No name, no, you know. Inventory is fun because when you're dealing with a guy and there's been a divorce, he will never use her name. She's my ex-wife. Because if they gave it a name, that would make it a human being, you know, instead of a piece of property, like my car. Do you, you understand? See, it seems like subtle stuff. It's not subtle stuff. Mine. All your inventory comes from mine. Get your sense of self out here. I don't get my sense of self out there. You do these steps. There's an incredible line right before you get to the bottom of page 62. It says, with God's help, I can be entirely rid of self. Think about the implications of that. Do you believe that? See, you can't believe some of the book and not all of the book. So is that possible? See, and the more devoid of self you are, then the sense of self comes from the inside out. And then you don't need things from the world. You're there to give back to the world. To love people as they are. You see? You don't need something else to complete you. See? See? Today you can add to my life, but you cannot take from me. What a wonderful way to live. See? You could add to, but you cannot take from me. See? Keep working these steps over and over. Get rid of self. Entirely get rid of self. Submit to four through nine again. Right? Talk a little bit with you about how I rework the steps. That experience going to the nut house caught my attention. <laughs> So if there's any of you in here that have a little time, been a while since you haven't done any step work, pay attention. So once a year, I resubmit to the first nine steps. It varies how that comes about. Sometimes someone asks me to work with them, etc. Sometimes I just pick a day and I sit down. So now I'm going to go back through this process again. And now what am I up against? Now what I'm up against is all that I think I know and all my memory of all my past experiences, right? So if I'm going to start a set of spiritual exercises with an answer, nothing new can happen. So a lot of you here are familiar with a set-aside prayer. So every time back through, I write another one. And as I begin to go back through and read, prayerfully read, I've learned how to read with a heightened sense of consciousness. See, because this book, this big book, is not about transmitting knowledge. It is truly about transmitting a course of action to awaken your consciousness to have a revolutionary spiritual experience. So I take awakened consciousness into that, and I begin to read and go back to the doctor's opinion. Look at the obsession, pages 23 to 43. How is it today? How is it today? And then I go back, and then I remember and then I really come up against current, current stuff. How is it today, Mark, at work with all you and all your employees? How is that? 28 employees. How is it in the rooms? How is it in your home group? How is it with the men you sponsor? How is it with the woman in your life? How is it with your pals? See, I don't have friends, by the way. I have a lot of pals, but I don't have friends. I got tired of writing inventory on friends. 
So a strange thing happened. There are certain words that my mind will create a script for, and one of them was friend. And what that translates to in my third column, I write a script of how friends are supposed to be and how they're supposed to treat me and blah, 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 and you don't fit it, and now I have to waste all this paper writing inventory on you. I discovered the word pal creates no script. So I have no friends. I have a lot of pals. See? That's true. It's very true. But how is it in all those areas? How is it with my physical health? Can I manage this without God? And I keep working and I keep sitting with that till I get taken to the place where I must realize again that of myself I am nothing. Of myself I am nothing. See, In my 27th year without a drink, of myself I am nothing. Without God I am lost. And you touch that experientially inside yourself. You see, you touch that and you feel that. You see, in the last year alone, based on your history, I should have been drunk 50 times in stressful situations and fear-based situations and people I love died and I see that I'm sitting here sober and I touch that again. I touch that love. I touch that power that I was asleep to. See? Touch that first step again. That's how you touch that when you've been sober for a while. Strips you of any degree of spiritual pride, you know, says, my God, this power is there and it loves me. It's been taking care of me, right? See? And then the second step, how do you approach it with time? You know, is there a God who can take me past here, past this set of belief systems? See, we're all here, every single one of us right now, right up to this moment, you have a set of belief systems that have brought you here. That you, by the way, that's how you operate your life. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but every action you take or do not take is based on the belief systems that you currently hold. You better wake up to what those are. It's easy to do. Is there more past here? Are there dimensions of joy and wonder and love and service that I know nothing about that God would take me to if I would be willing to submit to the process again? See, because I know what the process is. The process, one step at a time, is going to slowly destroy the current belief systems that I hold. My life is good today. See, the longer I'm sober, the harder the step work, but the easier and better my life gets. Why do you think I would say the harder the step work? Because the ego is just a lot craftier. See? You got this spiritual guy who wants to go out and help people. See, even my motives are kind. You get that? See, ego still is operating. But boy, it's crafty. You better have some people around you, you know, down the road a little bit further to help you when you get all that spiritual, right? See? But is there more past here? See? Yes. Yes, am I willing to go for that? See? And you make that choice again. Is God's everything or is nothing? Faced with a self-imposed crisis. Wow. Yeah, self-imposed crisis. What? My current unmanageability, my current self-will that I didn't even see was going on. There's tension here and there's tension here. And this frightens me, you see. Then you come up to that third step. Am I convinced my life, sober, managed by me, cannot and will not work? You sit with that. You begin to see examples that it cannot and will not work. 
examples of things that you set in motion when you fell asleep dreaming you're awake. See, I got rid of the idea that because my eyes are open, I'm awake. See, a lot of people going through life on autopilot, making, quote, choices. See, wake up, right? You wake up, you look at that. Oh, that beautiful, that incredible third step decision. Big book describes, it was a page and a half to describe what it looks like when you and I run the show. If my range would only stay put and it, it lays it out so masterfully. And then it, I, I love that, those lines in there. I suffer from the delusion that I will be happy and satisfied if I manage well. And what manage well translates to for me is I think I know what it looks like. I think I know what I need to be okay. And you too. See? And you sit with that again, you know. You come up to that incredible decision, you know, at the bottom of 62. Uh, we were talking about this the other, the other day, you know, you hear this. gentleman was talking about he was doing a, a thing in a detox, and, and uh, there's a lot of people, if you use the word, I'm a recovered alcoholic, they have a reaction to that. And... Uh, This false humility, I'll always be recovery. You don't have to believe me, look in the book. As far as I can tell, it's only mentioned twice. Recovery's mentioned many, many times. See? My experience, people who say they're always recovering don't want to take responsibility for their life. Because I'm going to tie this into this third step decision. I'm going to read you the definitions of a decision I made with the God of my experience. I take complete responsibility for my life today. I am recovered from what? A hopeless state of mind and body. Now, I may lie to you, but it's not because of whiskey, because I'm a liar. <laughs> you see? But you get to that, that third step decision. So this is, the, this is the how and why of it. We had to quit playing God. So you can't know God. You can't tap into the power of God if I'm playing God. It, me playing God, does not work. So next I'm going to decide that hereafter in this drama life, God's going to be my director. He's the principal. I am his agent. Let me give you the definition of agent. A person empowered to act for another. Why don't we talk about this more? See? spearheads, an agent of and for God. See, how do I know what you need? I do this work. I become like a hollow bone. I sit in my room. I pray and meditate to come down here to be an agent for God, to speak to you about what it is God knows you need that I don't have a clue of. And I claim that. Now, this, this false humility, oh, I'll always be recovered. You know, I hope you get something out of what I share. <laughs> Who in the hell wants that? See? See, this, if you're new, if you're new, get a dictionary, look this up. See? This program's about power. It's the power of God running through you. At a cellular level, turn your ass inside out. 220 volts, stand your goddamn hair on its end. See? That's what the steps are about. That's what we ought to be talking about. That's what we ought to be bringing to new people. 
You get to be an agent of God. You get to speak for God. Be used by God. Whoa! You know? But see, if, if you embrace that, then you've got to be willing to do what it takes to let that happen through you. Quit walking around with this, I'd be recovering and be sick. You know? Bullshit, you know? Actor, a player on the stage, one to wax a doer. I'm reading to you my part in the deal versus God's. Director, a person who directs or controls, supervises, manage. Principal, God's the principal, right? I'm the agent. First in rank, authority, importance, a person who employs another to act as his agent. Children, plural of child, a son or daughter, a descendant. Good God, touch your divinity. See, touch what you are. Touch what you can do, how you can be used. The employer, a person hires one or more persons to work for wages or salary. And then the book talks about a position. It is a person's mental attitude toward or opinion on a subject. That is the decision I made in the third step. To have that kind of relationship, see? With that kind of a God. That kind of a powerful God. See? 20 foot tall and I got my... My, got my arm around his calf and ain't nothing touching Mark Houston except what God wants to touch Mark Houston. So bring the shit on. You get that? I am safe and protected. Bring it on. See? Someone said, well, you you go somewhere and they're doing the middle of the road and your character gets assassinated. Does that bother you? No. No, it doesn't. You know? What an incredible position I got to take. Hopeless, babbling elky. And at the third step, I made a decision and I moved forward with a course of action to tap into this kind of a relationship. And I take this into everything I do. See, See I tell you why I know this works. When I sobered up, I had brain damage, kidney damage, liver damage, everything I own is in a duffel bag. I'm in my 27th year without taking a drink of vodka, which is impossible for me. When I got sober, I would have had to be cremated because six people wouldn't give a shit to carry me if I died. <laughs> Today, if I died and people could get there, there would be a lot of people there. I've got to travel all over this world talking about God in these steps. I've got to publish a book. I've got to own my own company. Pals and relationships beyond belief in my life. See? What an incredible, incredible thing that I have gotten as a result of a set of precise, specific, clear-cut directions in my life. To be able to love, to love at a level that hurts. You know, about a year, year and a half after <clears throat> Don died, I was in uh, driving up to my house, and I, I really miss some of my teachers because they, they've all died. And I was just crying that pain because, see, when you love, when you can love like this, there's pain like this. 
God, and I was so grateful that I was in so much pain because it showed me how much I loved. And to see that, then that voice said, Don's always inside of you, my friend. I know where that voice was coming from. God, if I hadn't got sober, if I hadn't worked the steps, I could never have had those kinds of experiences, you know. To, to people who've influenced your life that are no longer around, to, to think about them and weep. My God, what a deal, see. To be awake enough when you get on an elevator to stand in the back and be the last one out. What a deal. To be awake enough to go into a Starbucks in a busy day and see this person's harried. And just look him in the eye and say, how's your day going? To be that awake. See? To not worry about what's coming back at you anymore, but give, 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 give. Then it's that strange paradoxical thing is that the more you give, you have more coming back to you even know what to do with. Disciplines of the 10th and 11th step. You know, every day. All day. My God, what a, what an incredible thing! You see, you we get to we get to go through this. We get to take this experience. We get to take men and women who come into here. And by the way, all the Al-Anon women I've listened to, I your work out of the Big Book is phenomenal. It's fabulous. Thank God for Al-Anon people. Every Alki in here. Well, the only people would be in here be Al-Anon because all the Alkis would be dead. Yeah, I, I don't ever forget that, you know, so, but my God, thank God for a big book, you know, thank God for, for men and women who love me more than they cared about how I felt about what they said to me. See, and I'm that way today. Some people say, well, you're direct. You're, yes, I am, because I love Alkies, you know. Maybe God sent me here to talk to the one, two, three, four, ten of you that are headed toward a drink, and you don't even know you are, and the few that could drink Maybe I came here to talk to you. And if so, I'll go to any lengths to do that, to, you know, to stop that from happening. To, to tell you, if you're in this room, I don't care how long you're around, there's more. Take an ocean to thimble, you get a thimble full of water. How much of this deal you want? See? You can take a dump truck to the ocean. How much of God you want? There's no limit to that. That's what's incredible. But I've got to be willing to do a few things. And I gotta act on trust, you know. I gotta act on faith. But uh, that's all I got. God bless you. I love you. <laughs>